Boozed and Confused is a comedy and weird topic podcast. Adult language may be used probably by me. While our episode topics may be educational in nature, we are not responsible if your children start dropping the F-bomb to their kindergarten class. Listener discretion is advised. Oh, shoot. We're starting. Hey. We're starting. Howdy. Hey, y'all. Hello. Hi. I'm Carol Ann. Um, I'm Matt. And welcome back to another episode of Boozed and Confused. It's currently Monday night. We usually publish Monday mornings. We were insanely busy this past week, and we're sorry. I'm not sorry. But we wanted to, um, you know, save our sanity and also have something that was like somewhat of a decent quality and not super shit. Um, so we decided to just put it off until tonight. You're welcome. Hopefully it'll probably be like Tuesday morning when you're listening to this. I'm still not sorry, though. <laughs> um, speaking of super shit. I think uh, <laughs> I didn't tell you the news. What's the news? So a couple weeks ago, like three, four weeks ago, we started putting all of our episodes up on YouTube for audio. And it turns out that there's a huge niche on YouTube for like sci-fi, UFO, paranormal type of content. And um, one of our episodes, which is about Bob Lazar, um, is probably one of our more popular episodes that's been popping up. <laughs> so I go onto YouTube the other day. <laughs> oh no. And there's a comment that says, crap podcast. <laughs> it's like listening to kids at the school dinner table. Thumbs down. Oh man. <laughs> nice. So then naturally I responded, dad, is that you? And then the person responded, no, I'm 22, so I can't be your father. Typical childish reply from a childish channel. Wow. Who, so I didn't respond after that, but I thought that was the who funniest is this shit. person? I have no idea. Um, The account literally just says Mr. That's the account name. So. Oh. Oh, God. I it, thought this was going to be something good. Wait, but also, so you go to the... um. Okay, so this person joined November... 2015 so it's not like somebody made it just for our account which makes me feel better but if you go to like the account description for the about um fifa 17 bpl saves slash goals there's like nothing else in the account but i thought that was so funny so i <laughs> wanted to share we haven't gotten um any like bad reviews that i've seen so except for that guy except well that's not even a review that no, was just a that really funny you know never read the comments how no, about that <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going through all of the videos right now i gotta find this person oh anyways what episode was the bob lazar one did you not what, listen no, to me no 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 what number oh i don't know Who am i listening i literally have headphones on i hear your voice <laughs> twice 24 7 um all right so we're gonna get into it today we're actually gonna do a listicle that is uh, about classic horror stories that were inspired by true events. It's spooky season, my friends. It's middle of September. I'm going to decorate for Halloween and uh, it's spooky season. 
I'm not getting the things up from the crawl space. I that's fine. I'll do it myself. I'm an independent woman. Don't need a husband. Oh wait, for no, my sorry. No, no, sorry, no, no. I'm being childish at the lunchroom <laughs> table. Thumbs down. Thumbs down on me. <laughs> okay, but before we get into today's episode, um, some housekeeping notes. Um, the first one is if you are on social media and you want to hang out with us on social media, you can do that on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and now YouTube, and you can go to YouTube and tell us how shit you think we are, <laughs> and then we can laugh about your comment on the pod. Um, if social media isn't really your thing, you can send us an email at boostandconfusedpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you don't like either of those options, I'm sorry to tell you. That's all we've got. Mr. I want to send you stickers. MR. <laughs> yeah, if that if that was you that left that comment on YouTube, we would like to send you some boost and confused stickers uh just for the laughs. You you can put them on the garbage can. You that can you take out um, We'll pay for postage. When you buy your my little pony action figure, <laughs> you can put the okay, box. Okay, that's me. That He's twenty two. My Little Pony is <laughs> fine for a 22-year-old to enjoy. All and right. I'm sure our friend Mr. Uh, does. All right. Well, so uh, speaking of stickers, if you like the pod and you want to support us, the best way that you can do that is by leaving us a review and subscribing or following wherever you listen to your podcasts. I used to say Apple Podcast, really just wherever. Totally fine. Uh, you can't leave like reviews or anything on Spotify, but um, you know, I'll I'll take any review. You can leave reviews on Thumbs YouTube. Thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mr. Uh, what size fedora do you wear? Oh my God! Stop it! I hope you're not taking this to heart because I thought it was fucking hysterical, oh, no. and that's why I shared it. Oh no no no! This is this is great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I'm just in random conversations that you and I have now. I'm just going to thumbs down. Typical childish response. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so if you uh, do leave us a review anywhere where you do listen to podcasts, um, take a screenshot and send it to us and uh, we'll send you some boosting and confused stickers for free, regardless of where you are in the world, really. We'll, tr- we'll try to get it to where you live, I promise. Even if you hate our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the last thing, what are you drinking? Chicago Handshake. What is a Chicago Handshake? Well, let me tell you a little about the Chicago Handshake. It's the Chicago flag. It's, it's a nice old style. <laughs> and then a shot of Malord. Yeah. Uh, don't ask why we have a bottle of Malord just ready to go in the house, but... Uh, we do. That's, you never yeah. know. Actually, you know what? What was it uh, last year when our basement started to take on water? And we started to get the water out, and then we stopped, and then we took a shot of something, and then we kept going. Was that Malort? It was Malort. Yeah. Was that's Malort. that's why you have Malort in the house. Yeah, you were having a better time with that than I was. I yeah. was I was pretty pissed. Well, it happens. But yeah, no, uh, old style and a shot of Malort. I'm not drinking that because I, I, nope, 
a lot of reasons why. Well, actually, um, when I came down with COVID, uh, I threw the kitchen sink at it. Um, uh, large amounts of Malort actually combat the COVID-19 virus. Is this the new ivermectin? Yeah, only it's made for humans. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm drinking a Smithix because there's nothing else in the house except one lonely Oktoberfest left, and I'm not ready to finish her off. So. There's a lot of beer in the garage fridge. Yeah, but it's all the Southside beer, and I don't know that I want that for the pod, so that's fine. Okay, uh, I'm taking my uh, shot of Malort. Yep. Enjoy. That's vile. Your face says that you love it. Uh, well, my taste is fully back, I think, because that was delightful. I love Malort. Of course. <clears throat> mm. Now it's official. Oh, great. All right. So without further ado, I think we'll just get into it. Let's just get going. Let's just get into it. So uh, this is from listverse.com. We will link it in the show notes. Um, but pretty much the TLDR of this entire article is like famous writers, horror stories that were, um, inspired by true stories that were also very creepy. Like true events. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Starting with number 10. No, do it like watch Mojo. Number 10. <laughs> okay. I don't have that voice. <laughs> All right. So number 10, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Birthmark. Uh, this is an 1843 short story that concerns a scientist, Almer, who finds his wife, Georgiana, exquisitely beautiful, except in one detail, her cheek. He believes it's marred by the presence of a birthmark in the shape of a miniature hand. He persuades her to drink a potion so that uh, he concocts, which causes the birthmark to fade completely, but in the process of doing so, also kills her. Whoopsies. Uh, <laughs> the last two sentences provide the story's theme. Quote, Blinded by a meaningless imperfection and an impossible goal, Almer had thrown away her life and with it his chance for happiness. And trying to improve his lovely life, wife, <laughs> he had failed to realize that she had been perfect all along. Oh. It's the imperfections. What a dick. What is it? Um, no, uh, 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 it's the idiosyncrasies that make people special. Yeah, of course. Okay, so according to Patricia Dunleavy-Valenti, author of the biography Sophia Peabody Hawthorne, 1809 to 1847, Hawthorne's story was inspired by his own wife's miscarriage, which is actually very sad. Translated into fiction, the blood color of the birthmark suggests female issue, whether that produced by menstruation or miscarriage, or as in Sophia's case, the one possibly confused for the other, which to Hawthorne encodes the sum of female ailments to include depraved sexuality and faulty reproductive capacity. Oh, that's a, that's a mouthful. That was a mouthful. And that was also very sad. So. Well, you know, they, they say something about uh, the writer and their uh, like thoughts and they, uh, there's this, there's a saying where it's like, as you're writing, you have to kill your little children sometimes. <laughs> and the children are your, uh, your, like, ideas that mm. you're writing. Mm -hmm. And it's very painful. Yeah, that, uh, I don't know, that's really weird. That's like The Shining. No, they would just, 
always say that in the writer's workshop that sometimes you have to kill your ideas or like put them somewhere else where they work better. R.I.P. Number nine. <laughs> Great. This one's called the oblong box. The oblong box. Which is great because it's Edgar Allan Poe, and I love Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, so uh, in 1844, he wrote a short story called The Oblong Box, and it recounts a sea voyage in which uh, Cornelius Wyatt, his wife, and his two sisters reserve three rooms aboard uh, a ship called the Independence. So Wyatt and his wife, along with this oblong box, which really smells bad um has its own room and his sisters occupy another this third room the narrator of the story assumes is either occupied by their servants or is used to store the traveler's excess luggage uh, although wyatt's wife is rumored to be a beautiful woman the narrator observes that she is actually quite plain uh, when she leaves her husband alone in their room to spend the night in the third room. After the ship is lost during a hurricane, uh, Wyatt refuses to join the crew and the other passengers in the vessel's lifeboat, uh, lashing himself to the box instead, and he drowns at sea. Uh, during an encounter, a month afterward, the ship's commander, Captain Hardy, explains the mystery of the box it was a coffin wyatt accompanied by his sisters was traveling from charleston south carolina to new york city to return the body of his beautiful late wife to her mother uh, to avoid disturbing guests the captain arranged for the box to be registered as baggage and wyatt's maid had posed as his spouse Man, that's kind of sad. Uh, Poe was inspired by a newspaper account three years earlier of John C. Colt's murder of Samuel Adams, the brother of Samuel Adams, who manufactured the famous Colt revolver that proved uh, uh, equally popular among both 19th century Wild West gunfighters and soldiers of the U.S. Army. So is that the beer one or no? I don't, I don't think that's the beer one. I don't know. I don't know. Regardless, the real event, the the murder occurred in 1841 as the result of an unpaid bill. After he had killed Adams, the murderer had packed his victim's corpse in a box of salt, shipping it to New Orleans. Uh, after Adams' friend notified authorities that he had gone missing, the box was found aboard the ship. The stench of the decomposing body, crew members said, had been mistaken for rat repellent. That's disgusting, actually. No, thank you. Um, okay, so number eight. Number eight. <laughs> is uh, The Signal Man, and this is written by Charles Dickens in 1866. It's another short story. So this is a gripping horror story based on the Clayton Tunnel crash. A signal man stationed at a remote location near a tunnel tells the narrator that he hears bells warning him of imminent danger just before a phantom appears, heralding a horrific crash. 
On one such occasion, the narrator is present. Not hearing the warning bells the signal man hears, the narrator believes that the signal man is hallucinating. Finally, the signal man himself is struck and killed by an oncoming train after failing to heed the engineer's repeated warnings to him to step clear of the track. Reports of the Clayton Tunnel crash, which occurred on August 25th, 1861, five miles from Brighton, the seaside resort on England's southern coast, inspired Dickens' story, as may have his own experienced four years later, on June 9th as the survivor of a train wreck. He was traveling with his mistress, Ellen Tiernan, and Tiernan's mother, when their train derailed at Staplehurst, a village in Kent, England. A sketch in the 1965 edition of the Illustrated London News shows the wreck. Cars toward the rear of the train separated from those toward the front, several of which fell from a viaduct, breaking and splintering as the train was crossing the trestle. The locomotive leans precariously over the side of the trestle, propped up by a thick timber as officials and spectators watch laborers clear the wreckage. That reminds me of the CTA crash in the loop, like, decades ago. Do, do you remember anything about that? I remember, I mean, like, it was yesterday. Yeah, okay, well, I don't, I don't think we would have remembered, but... That's very um, resembling. So having survived the accident, Dickens rendered assistance to the injured, some of whom died in his presence. Ten people did not survive the incident, and 49 others were injured. The author then returned to the wreckage to receive the manuscript of his novel, Our Mutual Friend. He related the ordeal in a letter to his old school friend, um, Thomas Mitten. The wreck seems to have resulted from several causes. The train was traveling downhill at 50 miles per hour. Rails on the viaduct had been removed during repair work. The foreman in charge of the construction site had consulted the wrong timetable, and he did not expect Dickens' train for another two hours, and the position of the flagman, who had been stationed with a red flag to warn the engineer of the need to stop, was against regulations too near the viaduct to allow the train to stop in time. The accident left an indelible impression upon the author. Dickens wrote, I have sudden vague rushes of terror, even when riding in a handsome cab, which are perfectly unreasonable, but quite insurmountable. You know, the PTSD is real. I get it. I was in like a horrific car crash when I was like 15 or 16, um, which probably explains a lot of my backseat driving tendencies. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, but yeah, I get it. I can imagine seen most often in the parking lot when i pass by a crap parking spot i don't i don't want okay you know what just get to the next number one. <laughs> seven uh the yellow wallpaper i actually read this long time ago the yellow wallpaper um so this is an 1892 horror story and it's described as intense um i often find that things from this time period being called horror are just like horribly boring wow that was really clever <laughs> so clever. <laughs> so clever. this is why mister on youtube thinks that we're like two children at the the school lunch table bickering thumbs down two thumbs <laughs> down you talk about me you pick on me that's not what friendship is, my little pony. <laughs> friendship is magical. Oh my god, just get on with it. It's because I'm a brony. Oh my god, we're never gonna fucking get through this. Go. <laughs> you said the F word. Yeah, I probably have at least twice. This was your first one for this episode. Anyways, uh, the yellow wallpaper uh, is a an 1892 horror story 
the protagonist is a woman confined to a bed in an otherwise empty room. Uh, the walls are covered in yellow wallpaper, and uh, she slowly loses touch with reality. Her husband, who is a doctor, and her brother-in-law, uh, also a physician, concur that bed rest is the best treatment for her temporary nervous depression and its attendant uh, hysterical tendency. She does not seem to be as certain, but she follows the recommended treatment of phosphates or phosphites uh, and tonics and journeys and air and exercise, foregoing any at all work. So she's alone in this room with nothing to do. She studies the yellow wallpaper, finding it dull, confusing, and full of uncertain curves and contradictory, outrageous angles. The color is repellent and horrid to her. And eventually she discerns a faint figure behind the wallpaper, a woman who may provide her with the means of escaping her confinement and her husband's stifling care. And so in a 1913 article, the forerunner, Perkins, explained why she wrote the yellow wallpaper, describing her postpartum depression as a severe and continuous nervous breakdown tending to melancholia and beyond. In 1887, three years into her depression, a noted specialist in nervous diseases advised her to put sorry, advised her to have but two hours intellectual life a day and never to touch pen, brush, or pencil again. And so for three months, she followed the doctor's orders, which nearly cost her her sanity before she got out of bed and resumed work, a self-prescribed therapy that she believed saved her. Thankful for her narrow escape from insanity, she wrote the yellow wallpaper in the hope of sparing other women from a similar fate, uh, that of madness that had almost claimed her. After reading her story, the doctor who'd prescribed bed rest for her admitted to friends of his that he had altered his treatment of... Neurasthenia. What the hell is even that? I have no idea. Uh, but, you know, unfortunately, other doctors were not convinced by the story. A Boston physician protested that Perkins' story ought not to be written since it was enough to drive anyone mad to read it. And a Kansas doctor described her, her narrative as the best description of incipient insanity he had ever seen. Look, postpartum de depression ain't nothing to fuck with. Check in with all your new mom friends, everybody. Don't ask how the baby's doing. Ask how your friend is doing. I promise you, they're probably not doing as good as they make you think on Instagram. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. I'm going to put the soapbox <laughs> away. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's crazy though. Like you, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I had postpartum depression, probably to some degree. Um, but like you literally sit in the same room for like months Oh, yeah. You're so dissociated from yourself. You're just taking care of this human. And then everybody's like, oh, my God, the baby. And you're like, oh, my God, I haven't washed my hair in seven days. We painted the first floor a whole new color. 
Well, numerous colors. Now I'm happy. <laughs> numerous colors. <laughs> With the living room and the dining room and the kitchen. So, yeah. Oh, I'm going to read that one, actually. I'd be interested to read it. I read it. Oh, um, I, I think it, it was, was high horribly school. boring. It was high s- Thumbs down. <laughs> it, was, it was high school. Oh I think it was high school. Might have been college. It, yeah. Uh, that's it. Great. Okay. Number six. Number six. You got to do the thing. Number six. Hungry Stones. What is that face for? Did you not like my... No. You'll see. Okay. Well, shit. I can't pronounce some of these words. Rabindranath Tagore's. Okay. So number six is uh, The Hungry Stones. Rabindranath Tagore's chilling 1895 ghost story is based on his having stayed as a teenager at a former palace in uh, Shahingag? Shahinag. Oh, gosh. Near Ahmedabad, India. <laughs> Which is located along the... You're on your own. <laughs> it's late in the day and my contacts are just like really not staying on my eyes anymore. So Sabarmati River. Um, as a guest in the palace, he imagined how it might have been during the old days when it was in full swing. The result of his imaginative recreation of the palace in its heyday and his masterful story is in which a young tax collector, Srijut, um, stays in a remote palace that he believes is haunted by the spirits of its past occupants, including the ghost of a beautiful young woman. The story mixes everyday reality with supernatural elements as the palace's past mingles with his present. Karine Khan, a clerk among the tax collectors, summarizes the secret and the power of the palace. Its ghosts, victims of unfulfilled desire and demented lust, cause every block of stone to hunger and thirst due to the curse of the ghosts' anguished and frustrated longing. As the ghosts, uh, as the spirits, like ravaging demons, seek endlessly to devour anyone who comes within their grasp. Number five. This one's called Man Overboard. Is this what you were doing the face for? What face? You were doing a face before I did mine. Oh, no, I was just reading ahead of what you were going to try and read. Rude. You're not wrong. I rarely am. Rarely am. Uh, so this is uh, 1898, which is long before he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. Winston Churchill, good old Winston, wrote Man Overboard. This is a, a story of ironic suspense, a draft of which he shared with General Ian Hamilton, hoping the tale might amuse him. A passenger aboard a mail steamer on its way through the Red Sea falls overboard after he leaves a concert underway in the ship's companion house to smoke a cigarette and leans against an insecurely fastened rail. And although he makes a great splash, no one hears him, nor over the music does anyone discern his screams for help. As the steamer continues on its way, putting greater and greater distance between itself and the man overboard, the protagonist, becoming exhausted, despairs, unable to put an end 
to his plight by drowning himself as he'd hoped he finally prays to God for assistance. The answer to his prayer is not only ironic, but also um, unexpected. The story was illustrated by Henry Austin. Uh, as an article concerning the story observes, Churchill himself was a frequent passenger on ships that traveled back and forth across the Red Sea en route or returning from India or South Africa. And during these trips, he might well have imagined the possibility of falling overboard or the terror of such an experience was something he knew firsthand as a result of an incident that happened to him as a youth. So during a boyhood adventure on Lake Geneva with his brother Jack, the siblings jumped off their rowboat to swim, but the boat caught in a light breeze was blown farther and farther from the boys, and young Winston felt himself uh, at the sensation of the boat pulling away as he realized that no help was near and that he and Jack were unaided and might never reach the shore. He began to swim in earnest for life, and he was able to reach the boat in return for Jack. In recalling the incident in his autobiography, Winston Churchill wrote, I saw death as near as I believe I have ever seen him. His feelings are reflected in the character of the man overboard. What kind of... Um episode can we do that is entirely in a winston churchill accent from you impression sorry anything world war ii perfect yeah you don't think that's lake geneva lake geneva do you i why I'll, the hell I'll look would it up. winston churchill go to lake geneva you know it's a nice place to visit and shop i don't know <laughs> it ain't westchester <laughs> uh i gotta say i think like Potentially drowning is one of the scariest ways to die. I definitely follow that one subreddit, like Thazophilioma or oh, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the Mesophilioma. Last... <laughs> it's, not, it's not that. Thasylophobia. Yeah, something it's, it's like that. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the fear of like deep water or yeah. something. Yeah. And then there's uh, there's another subreddit that's kind of similar, but it's uh, like all the spooky stuff you find on the bottom of the ocean like that necklace from the Titanic, and then he went down and got it for Britney Spears. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't have. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Oops. I did it again to your heart. Well, it's probably, like, outdated now in old news, but I know a lot of... Uh, Free Britney. I know a lot of pods were doing episodes on Britney Spears, but that ship has probably sailed. So, uh, number four is called Summer Night. Although Ray Bradbury's suspenseful 1947 mystery, Summer Night, does not appear to be in print nowadays, it is the basis of a short film of the same title, which was broadcast on July 15, 1948, on the suspense television show. In the film starring Ida Lupino, Anna is initially unable to get a telephone call through to her friend Helen. During the panic that ensues, the news that the lipstick killer is on the prowl after having killed two victims, the operator has trouble connecting the call. Terrified, Anna wants company, even though she and Helen haven't spoken for four years. Agreeing to keep Anna company, Helen arrives at Anna's house, only to discover just how much stranger Anna has become since she last saw her. Ooh, I'm liking this one. 
Bradbury's original story was inspired by two horrific murders, that of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, and that of uh, Jean French, whose case became known as the Red Lipstick Murder. In Bradbury's story, the suspect is known as the Lipstick Killer, and his signature is a mark that he writes on their corpses using orange lipstick. On January 15, 1947, during a walk with her child in a Los Angeles, California neighborhood, a mother stumbled upon the remains of a woman whose body had been cut off uh, in half at the waist. The FBI matched the fingerprints sent to the L.A. Police Department to those of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, whom the local press subsequently nicknamed the Black Dahlia, based on Short's fondness for her sheer black attire and the Black Dahlia movie then showing in theaters. According to a special edition of the Daily Police Bulletin, issued on January 21st, 1947, she was last seen exiting a car at the Biltmore Hotel. A friend of men and women alike, she frequented cocktail bars and night spots. Uh, Her murderer was never identified or captured. On February 1st, 1947, the body of Jean French was discovered. After marrying four times, the 44-year-old woman, who'd worked as both a nurse and a pilot, disappeared in Los Angeles until construction worker H.C. Shelby discovered her naked, brutalized body near a pile of women's clothing. Savagely beaten and stomped, she'd bled to death. Her killer had used her lipstick to leave a uh, vulgar message for the police, Fuck you, PD, which he'd signed texts. The press had misread the message, though, reporting it as PD as BD which caused many reporters to associate her murder with that of the short, um, with that of short, uh, the Black Dahlia, who'd been killed only three weeks before. As was the case with short, despite various theories as to who killed French and why, her killer was never identified. It's kind of like Jack the Ripper. Hey, you guys, I did a really good job last night. You almost got me, but I got away. (laughs) Yeah, that was... Man, that was something else. All right. Number three. Oh, that was terrible. Number three. Number three. The number three. <laughs> uh, this one's called The Velt, which is another Bradbury uh, concoction. This story uh, follows uh, siblings, Peter and Wendy, like 10-year-old siblings. Um, and they're in this high-tech nursery which allows them to set up these uh, 3D biomes. And um, although their parents, George and Lydia, are afraid that the kids are putting too much time uh, into these uh, like made-up worlds that they create, uh, George argues that the artificial worlds aren't a threat. Uh, however, the children are in a battle of wills against their parents, waging uh, what... Critic Lana Diskin <laughs> characterizes as an insidious struggle for total power and control behind the facade of innocence in which Peter and Wendy's psychological alienation has produced the reality of Africa. Their versions of the Velt becoming increasingly wilder and more ferocious. George and Lydia have plenty to fear, the story's conclusion implies. And so, uh, as the children's name suggests, the the source of Bradbury's story is likely to be James Barry's play, Peter Pan. Uh, in both works of fiction, Wendy and Peter are devotees of a timeless never-never land, a dimension beyond the constraints and conventions imposed on demanding 
if not persecuting adults. Although unlike the children in Peter Pan, in the Velt, Wendy and Peter go beyond the point of no return. The vengeance they wreck on their parents leaves them unaffected and undisturbed. And the children experience neither remorse nor guilt, but reveal themselves as being holy terrors for whom expediency and self-preservation are the sole dictates of behavior. That's kind of neat. Sounds like raising kids sucks. I'm having an okay time so far. Yeah, I'm having a, I'm having a time. Yeah. Um, so this one is one that creeps me the hell out. Um, so number two is the birds. Number two. <laughs> Which I feel like is um, probably one of the most well-known ones on this list. Published in 1952, The Birds takes place in Cornwall in southwest England. Uh, Daphne du Maurier's hometown for most of her life. After a farmer is attacked by seagulls, the birds' kamikaze attacks become increasingly fierce and cover larger and larger areas until it has become clear that all of Britain is under aerial assault. The story's horrors are intensified as Nat Hawken, a farmhand, tries to protect his family. He discovers his neighbor's bodies after the birds' attacks and military aircraft appear insufficient to stem the tides of the birds' assaults. The story has political overtones since the east wind is implicated in the birds' attacks, suggesting the Soviet and Chinese aggression against England near the end of the 1940s and during the Cold War. I will say um, the movie, The Birds, terrifying. So creepy. Yeah. Sometimes when I see like large flocks of birds doing that thing that the birds do, you know. Yeah, that bird thing. I hate that bird thing. They just fly and yeah, (laughs) they all just like they all go the exact same direction. Wait, hold on. I do want to clarify something though. Birds aren't real. Hold on. I think you're (laughs) onto something here. I think you're onto something. Okay, uh, number one, number one. (laughs) There it is. Where are you going? Where have you been? Uh, this is <laughs> basically me as a parent. <laughs> basically, just you as a person. This is you as a human being. Oh God! Okay. So, there's a Joyce Carol Oates story. Oh my God! It is me. It's you. The story is uh, inspired by the horrific deeds of serial killer Charles Schmidt the Pied Piper of Tucson. So in her story, the murderer, Arnold Friend, has habits and these weird behaviors uh, that are apparently very similar to those of Schmidt. Uh, They're both charismatic. Uh, They would both uh, stuff their shoes so they would appear taller. Um, They liked rock and roll music, and they would prey on teenage girls. I don't know. I feel like one of those things is not like the other. Just saying. <laughs> you can buy shoe inserts now that make you look taller. You know that? Uh, is that a suggestion? No. You don't okay. have the societal pressures to be taller. Um, I have a lot of societal pressures to be taller. You put them on yourself. First of all, do you see what a struggle it is for me in the kitchen to reach anything on any of our cabinets? You've got your little grabby stick. It's 
kitchen tongs. Yeah, That's my grabby the, the stick. Tongs. Got the tongs. <laughs> got the little T-Rex thing. No, uh, it was, uh, yeah. So the uh, the murderer in Oates' story, as well as Schmidt, uh, would like mimic teenagers in the way they talked and dressed, um, but were not teenagers. Uh, How do you do, fellow kids? Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> Uh, so in her story, she said, uh, it's a realistic allegory in which Connie, an innocent young girl, is seduced by way of her own vanity. She mistakes death for erotic romance of a particularly American trashy sort. Uh, Schmidt murdered three girls, 15-year-old uh, Aileen Rowe, his girlfriend Gretchen Fritz, who threatened to inform on him to the police after he'd confessed his murder of Roe to her and the couple had fought, and Fritz's 13-year-old sister, Wendy, who just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Convicted, Schmidt later escaped from prison, but he was captured and returned, this time to be stabbed by two of his fellow prisoners. You know, good. Yeah, they always take care of it. Uh, he died 20 days later on March 30th, 1974, at age 30. But, hey, he was young at heart, right? What a creep. Creep, 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 creep. Well, that was that. That was number one. So that's the end of our list. <laughs> if you are into short stories, uh, this is definitely a good list to check out. Um the website, if you're going to link that, I think you are, uh, has all these like videos or audio pieces that you can like enjoy uh, to, you know, if you feel like checking those out. Uh, yeah, I'm for sure going to read the yellow wallpaper. Actually, I chose the yellow wallpaper for the cover art for today's episode. So you take a little looky loo at that. Uh, but yeah, that's it for today. That's all she wrote. That's all any of them wrote. Cool. I got to go to bed. Yeah, I'm tired. It's 930. Uh, my eyes are dry. <laughs> We're just doing really well. I'm going to go read a book after I publish this, I think. That's bedtime. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this list as much as we did. Um, we will see you guys next week. Good night. Good night. Goodbye. Thank you, Cleveland. <laughs>